Our second reading today is from the book of Malachi, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the last book of our Old Testament in our Purex. See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord, Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Israel will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. This is the word of the Lord. Chose today to use Malachi because it's the last book in the Old Testament. And the next book that we get to, which we'll be talking about later in the weeks to come, is Matthew. So the in-between years, the in-between books that we don't have, that's what I'm here to talk to you about. It's called the in-between years. You'll notice that there's a menorah on the cover of your bulletin today, and we'll be getting to that, but that's part of the story of the in-between years. This period of time is probably somewhere in the vicinity of 450 years. So at a 20-22-minute sermon, that's about three seconds a year, and I'm already about 10 years behind. So we will do as quickly as we can to catch up. The first thing, if you also notice in the bulletin, that I mentioned that this is called a meditation rather than a sermon. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with uh, Gary Pate, uh, Gary used to be up here and uh, gracious with his presence many times, and he would always do a meditation. And one time my family asked him, I said, why do you, are you picking that? And, you know, I called it a meditation on purpose. And of course, him being a teacher, I said, well, why do you do that? He goes, why don't you figure it out? So then I had to do some homework. So what I did, I went to Merriam-Webster, and I looked it up. So there are a couple definitions. The first for a sermon is a talk on a moral or religious subject, especially one given during a church service and based on a passage from the Bible. Okay, I can kind of get my hand around that. But it's the other one that made me nervous. A long or tedious piece of admonition, a reproof, or a lecture. Gary went with the second one, mediation, or meditation. A spoken discourse expressing considered thoughts, which I have done, on a subject which we'll be talking about today. So today we have a meditation. 619 years ago, or 619 A.D., uh, something happened in the United States. The first indentured blacks were brought to this country. About 400 and some years later, Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. If the story, the book that we've been using for our study so far, chapter 21 to chapter 22 represents that 600 years. Can you imagine history of the United States that basically ended with Jamestown bringing blacks into the country and the next chapter started with Barack Obama's president? Something would be missing and a lot of explanation about how that occurred. And so part of the point today is to be able to explain those years because they really are critical for our understanding of when Jesus is to come, the Messiah coming to uh, spread his word to the world. We need to know something about those years. The second point about this is a lot of this information we're going to get, which is not in our pew Bibles, comes from something we call the Apocrypha. And I want to just take a few seconds to talk about that because some people get a wrong impression about that. If Howard Wallace were here right now, he'd already be standing up waving his arms saying, you can't talk about that because it's not in the canon of the Bible. And we used to have some great discussions about that. But the important thing about the Apocrypha, it's in the Bible if you choose to buy one that has it. It's a series of 14 books that go all the way back to the time of basically 200 B.C. when the original Septuagint, one of the early documents for the church, was put together. And as the time went by, some of these were put into a separate group because they couldn't quite decide for sure if this was the actual word of the Lord, but they thought it was good information, and so it was included. And if you were to get a copy of 
a King James Bible like I did from the library. This is King James, the old 1611 one that we used when we were younger. And the Apocrypha is contained in here. It's just that it's also this thick. And a lot of publishers simply left it out, partly because it wasn't part of the accepted canon and also because of the fact that it uh, basically uh, was something they wanted to stick with what it considered the official canon. But the important thing to remember is that for 2,000 years, it was still it still is part of the Bible for a lot of people. The Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Catholic Church still uses it. Point being that it's important for us to understand that people back in this time, a long time ago, were using this information to study what's in the Bible that we do not have in our pews in front of us. A quick example of that is Columbus, when he went to see the Queen of Spain. He was trying to argue with her that there was a reason why he knew that he could sail to the west and arrive fairly quickly in the Orient. This quote, this comes from Second Esdras. Upon the third day thou didst command that the waters should be gathered in the seventh part of the earth. Six parts hast thou dried up and kept them to the intent that of those of these, some being planted of God until might serve thee. This is second Esdras. We have first Esdras in our Bibles in front of us. Actually, it's Esdras and Nehemiah, or Ezra and Nehemiah. Esdras is simply the Latinized term for Ezra. But this second book is in the Apocrypha. Well, Columbus went to the queen and said, it says right there, the world's seven parts and six parts are land. We know how far it is from here to China if we go by land. It's only going to be this far if we go west across the sea. The queen said, works for me, and the rest is history. But he used what we call the Apocrypha to convince her. But to them, it wasn't the Apocrypha. It simply was part of their Bible. So we'll be discussing other apocryphal books during the day, but some people get a little bit of a nervousness about those particular books. And the word itself tends to have a negative connotation, but all it really means is to hide or to be hidden. If you think of cryptography, the hiding of words within, uh, say, documents, it's really the basis of the word of something being hidden. And so that's what we'll be talking about today a little bit about that. But the ultimate person to give us a final word on this is the Apocrypha, that is, books which are not regarded as equal to the Holy Scriptures and yet are profitable and good to read, Martin Luther. So I'll just defer to Martin Luther that it's nothing wrong with using this. So let's jump right now to the beginning of our period we're talking about. We talked about Ezra and Nehemiah in the last few weeks and the granting uh, by Darius uh, the permission to go back and rebuild the temple, and later with Artaxerxes, the other Persian king, giving them permission to build the walls around the city. The colors up on the map that give you a sense of the world that was around at that time. The green basically is the extent of the Persian Empire to the east. A little bit of the blue area to the west, that would be Rome, Carthage, and the purple, it's not quite on the map. Dark blue, that's Egypt onto the south. A huge amount of empires a huge swath of land. This is a little bit later. This is around 320, but it gives you a sense of the world. Right there, that little dot right there, that's Judea. A very insignificant place and a very small place in the course of things and in the course of empire. And that's part of what's going to be important to understand during these 400 years we'll be talking about, is there wasn't much going on in that world that anyone really cared about. In fact, Darius, there's a statue of Darius that we have, it, that we found in Egypt, I say we, but you know the modern time archaeologists found, and Darius was the king specifically that Ezra had been speaking to. We talked about him in, in, in the books of the Bible we talked about over the last few weeks. And when he controlled Egypt, he had a statue made in a pharaonic style like the pharaoh, but basically it's a way in which for him to be able to say, I am your king. And at the base of the statue, it's hard to see it, but on the second slide you can see what's inscripted there. It's a series of cartouches. You those cartouches each represented, a cartouche simply is a way in which to put a proper name, something with a capital, a place, a person. We tend to think of it as Pharaoh's names, but it can be anyone's name, a place name. These are all the different territories that Darius controlled, and he's putting that on the base of a statue saying, these are the people under my feet. 
and Babylon is up there, and Egypt, and Asia Minor, and Phoenicia, and all the areas. Judea did not make the cut. So you'll notice up there there is nothing that represents the Judean peoples because it wasn't even important enough to carve onto the statue. It is a backwater within a backwater. And that's important to understand this because a lot of the history we're going to be talking about for the coming of Jesus is based on the fact that it was an area where the most of the world didn't give that much of a concern about it, including Darius. So when he sent Ezra back to build the temple, it was a fairly easy decision to make. He simply said, fine, you want to build the temple? My grandfather said you could, go ahead and do it. But it wasn't like it was a threat to the Persian Empire. So that sets us up for what we basically see constantly happening with the Judean people. And I have two very short little videos. The first video... On the left, the kitten represents the Judean people. The cat on the right represents the Persians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Greeks, or anyone else that the plucky little Judean kittens decided to put themselves up against. And so this is pretty much how the wars would continue to happen over the centuries. Thus ends the latest Judean revolt. Now, the second little video is the more important one, because after the revolts were over, people got very, very tired within these Persian empires, the Greek empires, Roman empires, of having to constantly deal with it. So all the multiple diasporas, the burnings of Jerusalem, the sending of the peoples off into the wilderness, and I refer to this as referring to the Judeans being in the dustbin of history. So again, the kitten on the left representing Judea, the cat about to appear on the right representing any of our empires we wish to talk about. And once again, into the dustbin of history, go the Judean people. The amazing thing is the resilience and the pluckiness of the Jews during this entire period of time, but that is a very good representation of how the world around them, the empires we'll be talking about for a few minutes, where it saw them in their representation. So 400 years. So we basically wonder what's happening in this Judean area. When the, we have some numbers that were specifically given to us in Ezra and Nehemiah, where they're talking about 40,000 some people returning to the area of Jerusalem, but we do know archaeologically that at many, during this period of time, at the early on areas, maybe 400, 300 BC, there were maybe only as few as 1,500 to 2,000 people actually living within the city of Jerusalem. The surrounding area around it would have had farmers and things like that, but a very, very small population, certainly fairly unimportant to the relative nature of what was going on in the world. But at the same time, the world around them was going through tremendous change. That chart that I showed you, or the map that I showed you, the Persian Empire was at its peak at this particular point in time. They were deciding to move west, and they had attacked the Greek homeland. They were now running, a, you know, their fleets were out sea, running actually into some of the Carthaginians who were off to the west. The Romans and the Carthaginians were at war. Uh, there was war throughout the entire Mediterranean world, and within that world was this little Judean population. Finally, after the Persians had pushed against the Greek for so long, the Greeks decided under Alexander the Great to try to defeat the Persian Empire. And so now we have the second level of people coming in here. We now have the Greeks deciding that they're going to push back against the Persian Empire and fight them. And Alexander the Great, if you've seen the Richard Burton movie, Colin Farrell movie, fairly famous guy, at least two movies made about him, but the bottom line is he's able to conquer the Persian Empire. And this is a sea change for the area, because when Judea was on its own, 
It was basically a theocracy. This is the beginning of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the people that we're familiar with from the Bible stories. But their beginning started them. For all intents and purposes, Judea was a theocracy run by the religious people. There were no kings anymore. The line of David had basically run its course, and there was no one to basically run the country. And for about 80 years, pretty much Judea was on its own being run by these religious peoples. They were called Zagos, which means twins, or from the word Zygote, like you know, fraternal twins or, that you have in uh, medical terms. So you now have 80 years of independence, and now here come the Greeks. They kicked the Persians out, and what changes now is a huge sea change for Judea and for that part of the world. For so long, it had been Assyrians, Babylonians, Hittites, Egyptians, Persians, people that in a sense culturally were the same. And now the Greeks show up with Hellenization. The world of Sophocles and Euripides and Plato and Aristotle, the idea of gymnasiums and theaters and a whole different cultural presence. And we call this the Hellenization of the Middle East. And this was really, really hard for the Judean people, for the Jews to accept because of all these neat things being brought in, the gods that were not even similar to any gods you were familiar with, even if they were pushing against them. So now suddenly in around 320, 310, you have this massive change. Meanwhile, the Greeks themselves were fighting each other with the death of Alexander. They divided up the empire into four parts. And those four generals fought each other for the next 150 years. Eventually, someone by the name of Seleucus, the Seleucid Empire, his descendants were the ones we will talk about a little bit. They were the ones that finally came out on top. The Ptolemaic Empire down in Egypt kind of came in second, and the others were sort of an afterthought. And what happened, Egypt and the rest of the former Persian Empire fought each other over and over and over again, and poor little Judea was in the way. Between 320 and 309, the city of Jerusalem changed hands seven times. And meanwhile, they're just going, they probably had flags, you know, they would pile flags in a drawer and say, okay, it's time to put out the Seleucid flag. Oh, here come the Egyptians to put out the Egyptian flag. They were just simply a bump in the road and not important to the people around them. And this continued for a great period of time. And what happened, you had the Hellenization of the Judean area. Pretty much Jerusalem became a Hellenized Greek city. The Sadducees, who were much more liberal, were the ones that ruled in that area. The Pharisees had much more control of the outlying areas where people were much, much more traditional. And you had that then conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which you see all the way down to biblical times when we talk about the book of Matthew, when we start getting into the New Testament. This continued on for a very long time, for about 150 years, until a new player showed up in town, and that was the Romans. Now, the Romans had been fighting their wars in the West to try to basically pacify and control that part of the world, and now they started turning their eyes to the East. Meanwhile, the Seleucid Empire, this one that was the former descendants of Alexander's general, under Antiochus, they had now pretty good control, and they were trying to take over Egypt finally forevermore. You'll see this particular picture. This comes from around 169 B.C., very, very famous Renaissance painting of the Roman proconsul, his name is Popilius Laenus, and he shows up with two Roman senators. A proconsul in Rome would be like the vice president showing up, so like the second command. This is under the Roman Republic. This is well before the uh, Caesars. And he's sent by the Roman Senate to say, tell these, uh, these, basically these people to go back home. They're no longer going to fight the Egyptians. And so what he did when he got there, kind of went above his orders, he simply took a stick and drew it. If you notice at the bottom, he drew a circle in the sand around the king of, of the Seleucid Empire. And he drew a line in the sand. And this is where that expression comes from. And he said, if you cross that line before you agree to go home, you're at war with Rome. He decided that he wouldn't do that. He agreed to go back home. And at that point in time, the three Romans, which is amazing, went back to Rome. 
and basically we're able to tell the Roman Senate that we now have control of Egypt. So the nice thing for a party next time, you can tell people where the term drawing a line in the sand came from, but more importantly was the date. So around 168. At the same time in Judea, the Judean people were looking around going, you know what? It looks like they're going back home. It looks like they've lost some of the power we thought they had. And it was one more time for those kittens to stand up and strike out. And this time they went to war. And amazingly, they were able to push the Persian slash Hellenized Greeks out of the Holy Land, out of Judea, basically area right around Jerusalem for all intents and purposes. And basically, they got up one day, looked out the window, and, and they said, I think we won. They were not used to this. You think about it. When's the last time that the, the Jewish people actually controlled their own homeland without someone on top of them telling them what to do? It had been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the people that had done this, the general, and he had actually been pretty much a brigand fighting a guerrilla warfare. His name was Judas Harkarnas, also called Judas Maccabeus, which Maccabeus in uh, the Jewish tongue basically means hammer. So he was Judas, uh, Judas the hammer. And he basically had fought a guerrilla war, finally got into a regular war, and he was able to force the people, the Persian slash Hellenized Persians, out of the area of Judea and take control. And this was, he was called, he was from the Hasmonean family, and it was called the descent of the Hasmoneans. And the Hasmonean dynasty now takes over for the next hundred years. Well, when this happened, he rededicated the temple because it was a great victory. It had been desecrated. didn't rebuild it, just rededicated it. And so he cleaned out the temple. And I'll read to, uh, uh, again, from the Apocrypha. Basically, within the Maccabees, these are two of the books from the Apocrypha. And they are a wonderful history of this period of time. You basically can read, starting with First and Second Maccabees, from about 170 to about 130, the history of this dynasty taking over the Judean people and how these people then were able to control and finally rebuild this entire state of Israel over the next 40 years. And to dedicate that particular day that the temple had been re, uh, re, uh, rebuilt or actually cleaned out, uh, moreover, Judas and his brethren, with the whole congregation of Israel, ordained that the days of the dedication of the altar should be kept in their season from year to year by the space of eight days from the five and twentieth day of the month Kaslu with mirth and gladness. This is the beginning of Hanukkah. The whole idea that it would celebrate this, and that was a hundred and some years B.C., so for 2,200 years the Jewish people have been celebrating this rededication through the celebration of the, of the festival of Hanukkah. The miracle of the oil is something that came about later on. It's not contained within the Apocrypha itself. That was a Talmudic tradition from about the 10th century A.D. But the event itself is something that has been celebrated for the last 2,200 years. Again, contained within the Apocrypha. So now we have the Hasmoneans. They are going to rule this area for about 100 years. But Rome is starting to show up. The big, big, big dog in the room, the big cat, the bigger cat than all the cats we've seen so far. And what ends up happening is you have the Romans now coming in saying, how do we codify ourselves within this world? Who do we need to fight? How do we have our presence? This is the time now of uh, Julius Caesar. This is the time of Pompey the Great, Mark Anthony, the people we know, even a little later, Augustus. This is the stories we start to know from the movies we've seen over the years and the history we remember from school. And what starts happening is the Hasmoneans start being pushed on a little bit by the Romans wanting to come in. Well, while the Hasmonean dynasty grew, it actually created a very large Israel, larger than it had ever been before. It even controlled areas which we consider to be Jordan today, southern Jordan. And down in southern Jordan, there was a former kingdom called the Edomites. 
And one of their leaders within the Edomite kingdom was a guy named Herod. And Herod basically decided that he wanted to ally himself and be a, be a leader within the Hasmonean dynasty. He actually married one of the Hasmonean uh, daughters. Her name was Marianne. He was his second Marianne that he owned by his second of his eight wives. Uh, and so he basically had married himself into the Hasmonean family. But at the same time, he was a very astute politician. So he spent time in Rome and got to know the Romans. And at the same time, the Romans were pushing against the Hasmonean dynasty and for all intents and purposes taking over Judea. While in Rome, Herod was given permission to be the king of Judea along with the Edomite kingdom that he came from. And when he returned, he then became king because the Romans had given him that permission to do that. So now the Hasmoneans have ended. The table had been set for Herod to come in and control that area. Now being uh, uh, later on his two sons by Marianne were both killed by him along with his wife because they were the end of the Hasmonean dynasty. That way he didn't have to worry about anyone trying to restart the Hasmonean dynasty. They were done. So now we have Herod. And so what we have now is the end of this 400-year period, and now suddenly the Romans are in charge. The Romans have come in, and meanwhile the poor, plucky little Jews that have been fighting against these people forever now have a new enemy. They now have the Romans to fight. So I have a little short clip. It's from a movie called The Life of Brian. For any of you that have seen it's a Monty Python film. It came out about 40 years ago. It's a pretty old film now. I would recommend it to you except for the profanity, the nudity, and the sort of sacrilegious nature of the film itself. So it's kind of hard to recommend the film. It's certainly not PG. But I was able to find one little clip that we can actually show in here. But I think it's a very good one because it's a group of 12 zealots who formed to be able to get together. And their goal is to completely remove the entire power and structure of the Roman Empire from Judea. And they're going to be our new kitten in the shelf. But what happens during this meeting is the subject comes up of what have the Romans ever done for us? And that kind of sets our table for what's going to happen in the New Testament. So here's our little uh, two-minute clip. They let us wipe bust. They take everything we own. And not just from us, from our fathers and from our fathers' fathers. And from our fathers' fathers' fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers. Yours, don't labor the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct? Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, man. Do you remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct and the sanitation are two things the Romans had done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously the roads. I mean, the roads go without saying, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Huh? Education. Yeah, And that brings us to our next slide, the Pax Romanum, peace. What the Romans had brought was something that had not occurred in this part of the world or the world in general around the Mediterranean for literally a thousand years. Peace, 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 peace. From the pillars of Hercules and the coasts of Spain to the, uh, the coast of the Holy Land, from North Africa to the Pontus, 
up into the Hellespont, into the Black Sea, the Adriatic, the southern coast of Spain, of France. The Romans controlled it all, and they now had created what they called, not the Mediterranean, but the Mare Nostrum, our sea. It was peace. And this sets the table, this sets the, 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 the situation for us to know that now the time is ripe for Jesus to be able to come because the world's at peace. Just imagine Jesus trying to spread his message or the Pauls or the Peters of the world trying to travel through an entire empire of constant warfare, piracy. Now we had a world of peace. And this peace, this Roman peace, lasted for 450 years in the West and almost 1,500 years in the East. And that's critical to our understanding of to be able to move our way into the New Testament. And so this Pax Romanum, this is God's plan and this is God's message to us, that he was creating an area in which the message of Christ could be brought. So I have one last little clip for you. And it's one, basically, it's kind of my uh, uh, overall understanding of how God had approached this. Remember back with Noah, after Noah, God had promised he would never wipe everyone out again. It's going to be a lot more work, but I'll just simply put up with these people and we will do our darndest to get through this process. So one of the ways I look at God is God, the cattle drover. His angels are the cowboys, and we are the people being herded. And so I have a little video here that just kind of represents how God, as a drover, is having his angels and messengers lead us reluctantly to where we need to be. This man right here is my great-grandfather. He's the first cat herder in our family. Herding cats. Don't let anybody tell you it's easy. Anybody can herd cattle. Holding together 10,000 half-wild short hairs. Well, that's another thing altogether. Being a cat herder is probably about the toughest thing I think I've ever done. I got this one this morning, right here. And if you look at his face... It's just ripped to shreds, you know. You see the movies, you hear the stories. It's, I'm living a dream. Not everyone can do what we do. I wouldn't do nothing else. It ain't an easy job, but when you bring a herd into town and you ain't lost a one of them, ain't a feeling like it in the world. So God's work has been cut out for him for many, 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 many thousands of years. But as he has pushed us forward and guided us to the point where we were trying to arrive to. These 400 years are important because he was setting the table. He was creating a tabula rasa, a blank slate, for us to be able to have the arrival of Christ come and be able to have a world in which Paul could travel without any concerns, have a safe place to be. And this 400 years set that table. And so I hope that uh, you keep also in mind that God's plan is on God's time and on his terms. A very simple little story goes that an individual had the opportunity to speak to God. And he asked God, now, what, what is a million years like to you? And he goes, well, like a minute. And then he asked another question. I would maybe ask something different, but he asked another question. He goes, well, what's a million dollars like to you? It's like a penny. So then the guy getting clever says, well, can I have a penny? He goes, give me a minute. And that's sort of God's way of approaching things. It's on his time and on his structure. And we have to keep that in mind. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your plan. We may not always know what it is. We may not always know where we're going. But we know you do. Sometimes we ask the question. We wish we'd had a little more information. But we also have the faith and the trust in you. Thank you for the time you spent with the peoples in the Middle East to be able to create this world that made it 
possible for Christ to be able to arrive. We thank you so much for that. We think of you constantly as the person that guides us and leads us, and we take and have faith that the destination is in your mind and we will get there together. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.